Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcasts on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am joining you live from the Munich Security Conference in Munich, Germany. The whole world has its eyes on the Bavarian capital, which for a few days every year becomes the fulcrum of a debate about the future of the transatlantic relationship and the world around it. And this year was no exception. Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, delivered what was perhaps her last speech at the Munich Security Conference, giving a powerful rebuke to uh, the Trumpian White House and its views of world order and a sturdy defence of multilateralism. Mike Pence came along and mentioned his president um, many, many times in his speech and called on Europeans to get out of the uh, JCPOA. And we also had speeches from the Russian foreign minister, from many uh, leaders from the Middle East. There were 30 or 40 heads of state. But most importantly, we were also uh, happy to be there with Ulrike Franke, who's a policy fellow at ECFR, who won the second prize in the John McCain what was it called again, Ulrika? <laughs> the John McCain Dissertation Award. And was called by Mike Pence one of the one of the thinkers of the of the future, of the next generation, of the next century. And Jonathan Hackenbreich, also from ECFR, um, who's based in our Berlin office and uh, who's been in Munich for the last few days along with me. So, Rika, you were uh, obviously uh, in the thick of things as, as the John McCain thinker of... Uh, of the <laughs> oh, boy. So yeah, what were the what were the highlights for you for this year's conference? Um, so I think my highlight, what I enjoyed most, was actually listening to German Chancellor Angela Merkel, um, and I didn't quite expect that. I mean, she delivered a speech that was quite energizing, energetic, and honestly rather unusual for Merkel. Um, it wasn't so much what she said. Um, she basically repeated the idea of, you know, a multilateral world order. It's up to all of us to, to, you know, build up or, or keep up the international system. Um, she talked about Nord Stream 2, the, the gas pipeline for which Germany has been criticized quite a lot. Um, she talked about German cars not being a threat to the United States, um, as the, Trade Ministry of the United States now seem to claim that was a very interesting moment in her speech. But really, mainly for me, it was the delivery. She she was very energetic and and quite unusual for her in a way. Um, she seemed to be talking basically freely. She seemed to have handwritten notes, um, even stumbled over her words a few times. All of this is very unusual. So basically, it seems Merkel almost unplugged. <laughs> well, Ma maybe Merkel freed a bit, freed from, you know, pressures from the party towards the end of her term, as, as the listeners know. So, yeah, that, that was quite something. She was also pretty blunt, saying, look, America, how can you leave us with such a mess pulling out of Syria, pulling out of Afghanistan, pulling out of the INF Treaty? This is European security that's at stake and you didn't talk to us about it. 
Yeah, and she's right, isn't she? I mean, that's that's not surprising, right? The Munich Security Conference is all about transatlantic relations, about European defense. In recent years, it has become a bit broader. You know, the Chinese delegation was there, and it has become a bit more international. But of course, transatlantic relationships are at the heart of all of this. And that Merkel isn't happy with the Trump administration, that's not surprising. But the classic uh, Munich Security Conference speech is like the one that John Kerry gave when he was uh, Secretary of State, where he comes over... And the US is pulling out of all of its bases in Europe, pulling its soldiers out, talking about a pivot to Asia, showing it doesn't really care about Europe anymore. And Kerry shows up and says, we're absolutely not pulling out of Europe. I remember when I was a child being in Berlin in the, in the American quarter after the war. This is uh, in my soul. The last thing you should do is, is think that um, us withdrawing all of our troops for Europe shows that we care any less about European security. So you're saying the content hasn't changed, but the way it's been delivered? I'm saying that it's quite unusual for a Munich security conference to actually um, have a real debate about what's going on. We had it on the Iraq war where you had the famous exchange between Joschka Fischer and Donald Rumsfeld. But for Angela Merkel to come along you know, normally a slightly veiled language where she says, I believe in the transatlantic relationship based on our common values, which is a kind of uh, clear critique of of, uh, of Donald Trump. But it's a, it's a kind of subtle one where you have to read between the lines. But there was no reading between the lines yesterday. No, there wasn't. But then that's the reality of where we're at. So again, I think that's basically what's needed. Also, I, I would slightly disagree with you in the sense that there hasn't really been a debate. I mean, this was one speech after the other. Yes, of course, you know, they kind of they referred in a way or, you know, took up a few points that the other had mentioned. But um, Pence didn't even answer questions. He gave his speech and then went away. And Merkel answered a few questions. And but They but were tough questions as well. What was the, what was the most fun and the <laughs> least fun that you had as chancellor over the last 13 years? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't exactly <laughs> the most critical questions there. Um, but no... <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't think it was it was really a debate uh, to speak of. And um, yeah, I think in a way these these speeches reflected the reality that we're in. And actually, that is something I think that's quite important and and quite useful. I mean, we need to acknowledge the reality that we are in a transatlantic transatlantic relationship isn't doing that well. I'm actually in a way more concerned by the speech by um, former Vice President Joe Biden, who gave a beautiful pro-Atlantic speech. speech. He gave basic, well, <laughs> even even more than that, he gave a speech that was there to stroke the transatlantic soul. And the commentator, the moderator of the session even said right after the speech, this is the speech we needed to hear. And I was thinking, quite honestly, I mean, yes, I also enjoyed the speech because standing ovations, but I don't think it's what's needed at the moment. I think it may almost be counterproductive because it, the whole narrative was, it's going to be fine. It was basically like during the Bush administration when uh, George Bush Jr., people used to love watching The West Wing because you had this kind yeah. of wonderful president in the White House. Because uh, Biden, in a way, was the kind of encapsulation of, of the world of yesterday, the world that we've lost, the transatlantic relationship, which he promised we'd get back after Trump, but which we all know in our hearts of hearts ain't <laughs> coming back. But the one which we did get 
was uh, was vice the real vice president Mike Pence yeah yeah so tell and, us about that your time well and and the interesting thing was that he as well he was he was emphasizing how much Donald Trump uh, his president who he mentioned all the time and how how great he was uh, how much he was committed to the transatlantic alliance and it was it almost felt like you know he was trying to say there was never any doubt about it and there was never anything um, that Donald Trump wanted different uh, I don't think he was really soothing the transatlantic no. soul no but he wasn't at all no mise-en-scene to this was he had just come from Warsaw where mm -hmm. the US had organized an anti-JCPOA uh, and then he, he had some kind of interesting touch points what well, from a German perspective in particular there were some quite interesting themes in his speech yeah there was not Nord Stream 2 and the Holocaust, sure. the Holocaust the Holocaust don't, don't forget was... to mention Auschwitz if you want to get on the right side of your German hosts well and so Pence to give a bit of you know background on this Pence had been exactly to to Poland um the day before on Friday and he had been with his wife to Warsaw and I think that was still very much in his mind and he talked about this he had he also did talk about his wife Karen almost as often as he talked about Donald Trump the leader of the free world which was which his, Two loves, or, yeah. <laughs> but I don't think Pence gave a speech about how the transatlantic relationship hasn't changed. I think he gave a speech about how the United States is still leading. His point was very much, you know, the United States is still the leader of the free world, is, is you know, leading the international community and all of that. And I kept thinking, just because you say it doesn't make it so. No, that's exactly right, yeah. But he was that, saying also, go, uh, he was saying get on board or get out of the way. That's not quite leadership, <laughs> is it? That's like bullying. Not, not at all. And he, but he did mention, you know, I'm part of the largest American, uh, delegation to the Munich Security Conference ever. That and, line, though, has been uh, repeated like 15 times. Right. The largest exactly. US delegation. It's as if you, the more you have to, you have to say it, how, how incredible that is, the, the more it makes you doubt, is that actually true? That there's so much commitment to leadership and all. But it was also in, in the very end, he talked about, um, civilizational struggles and we will, we will, you know, prevail and we will win the, the West. So you can. Freedom always wins the, what was Against it? evil. But should we maybe dissect it? I mean, I think the, the this Iran conference, uh, which they held in Warsaw just beforehand, was a sort of full frontal assault, both on European policy, because it was against the JCPOA and against the whole kind of approach that Europeans have taken towards the Middle East. But it was also a very obvious attempt to divide and rule European countries, reaching out to Poland, trying to kind of create a wedge between different European countries. So it was, it was uh, quite a provocative Thing to do on the way to Munich. And then in his speech itself, he, he said to Europeans that we call on you to, to finally uh, pull out of the um, Iran nuclear deal mm -hmm. and join us in pushing back against these kind of... Um, in that civilizational struggle yeah. that he thinks we're in. And of course, Merkel in her speech answered that by saying, basically, I'm paraphrasing, why on earth would we give away the kind of very last link or, or wedge or I don't know what you want to call it, um, on, on the Iranian regime? And why would we give away this thing that, you know, first of all, we consider a great achievement of European diplomacy, but also that just, that still gives us some kind of leverage? So we, while we stay on this sort of global level, we had some other kind of big leaders there, the Chinese foreign minister, the Russian foreign minister, various um, Middle Eastern leaders. Um, what did you take from their so interventions? I didn't, I didn't see all of it. I mean, that's kind of the, 
the problem with Munich is that there are so many things happening at the same time. So there are several sessions at the same time. And there are side events in addition. And then there are bilateral meetings, uh, which kind of means that you miss out even on some of the big names. I did see bits of the speech by Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, who I think has been coming to Munich for I don't know how many, how many years or decades. Um, I think before you were born, definitely. <laughs> right. <laughs> what I, well, certainly before Jonathan was born. <laughs> definitely, yeah. <laughs> what I picked up in this speech was this, um, the, the, the sentence where he spoke about the British defense minister and he said, yeah, the British war minister, uh, defense minister. And of course, it was like a super deliberate thing. And it was a reaction to the fact that in his speech, the British defense minister, Gavin Williamson, had in fact attacked Russia quite, you know, quite strongly. And uh, so, so Lavrov answered by basically calling him a, a war minister, which I thought was, yeah. It's one of these kind of interesting moments where like, oh, yeah, okay. It was interesting when Angela Merkel was speaking that she was also trying to broaden the alliance of people against it. So there was a, an interesting bit where she was talking about the, the INF Treaty and what Russia's withdrawal from the INF Treaty. Maybe we should have a tiny little explanation of what the INF Treaty is for people who are less wonky than you. Well, the INF is the Intermediate Nuclear um, Forces Treaty, and that, that was signed during the Cold War. And it's really a treaty, and, and Merkel said that for, for Europe, because it, because its uh, intermediate range missiles won't reach the US, but, but, it, but they will reach uh, Europe. And they can give, in a scenario of a nuclear war between uh, back then the Soviet Union and, and the United States, it can give, give the side that has them. Uh, if the other if the other side doesn't have them, uh, an edge and, and and an advantage because it's easier to use them. You know, the U.S. would have to to retaliate and get into the war, while mid range missiles you can just fight the nuclear war in Europe. And Merkel mentioned the INF treaty in her speech. Of course, she basically said it's really bad news for Europe and Germany that the INF treaty is basically history now. She, however, in this she part asked of the it, Chinese to, to come in and she, she said, she she said the Chinese foreign minister. She said, "Hey, you." Well, she, so, <laughs> so first there. of all, what I thought was was noteworthy. She very <laughs> clearly supported supported the American kind of line on that. She basically said. Um, the U.S. leaving the INF has become necessary because of the year-long violation of it by Russia. And she said, and Germany supported that decision. So that was quite a you know, clear statement of support. Um, she still said, as I said, it's, it's really bad news for, for Germany and for Europe. And yeah, then there is this whole debate on whether we can get the Chinese um, in, in that, which sounds... Unlikely, given that most yeah. of their weapons are, in fact intermediate range rather than long range in fact, yeah they have no interest in, in joining that I mean this is one of those ideas where you know I, I can't see this happening so um, that's some of the global things there's a kind of always an interesting European uh, story in these things when Wolfgang Ischinger oh the, the hoodie are you going to talk about the hoodie? Why don't you talk about the hoodie? Ah, uh, the hoodie made me very happy. <laughs> but on the first day Must of the conference. Must have been really warm, by the way. That's, but, but that we, is true. But we first have to explain what, what happened. So on the first day of the conference, um, Wolfgang Ischinger, who... It's well, an ECFR council member, but it's also the head of the Munich Security Conference. Former exactly. on, the, on the side. State Secretary, <laughs> former ambassador to the US, former ambassador to the UK, all the other great powers. Exactly. Ma mainly a council member. <laughs> so... Uh, 
uh, yeah, and obviously kind of the central person of the Munich Security Conference. And he was wearing this blue hoodie. So not, you know, suit and tie, but a blue hoodie with the European Union flag on the front, but it was missing one star, which, you know, of course, refers to, to Brexit and the United Kingdom leaving. And I think that kind of got mixed reactions. Um, I think, of course, you know, a few people loved it uh, because it's kind of quirky and, and, and a nice symbol and um, others not so much. But it was also a symbol about how he was thinking about Europe at the moment. And last year, there was a big symbolic opening ceremony with Florence Barley, the French defense minister, and um, Ursula von der Leyen, the German defense minister, two powerful women in a conference uh, not overly endowed with uh, female leaders over the years. We'll talk about that a bit later. But that was the kind of symbolic thing to get France and Germany mm -hmm. relaunching Europe, saving Europe. This year, they thought now France and Germany aren't getting on too well. So the big focus is on Brexit. And you had... Uh, from their line with uh, Gavin Williamson, the, the British defence minister. So I don't think it was because they said the Franco-German relationship doesn't work so well. I think it's because, well, they did this Obviously, last year. it is working really well, though. <laughs> so, so, Particularly on defence questions. Yeah. Emmanuel Macron was supposed to come to Munich and then rather late in the process pulled out because um, of domestic concerns with the Yellow Wests. Um, he also didn't go to, to Davos beforehand. So um, that was a bit of a shame because it would have been another nice, nice moment of having Macron and Merkel on the same on the same stage. Um, but well, Florence Parly was there. But yeah, but because it's not so going so well, it's actually a little toxic for him to be seen with Merkel all the time. Uh, domestically, that is that is an interesting yeah point, and they did a few symbolic things with the Treaty of Aachen, of course, before that. So what I wanted to say is, I don't think that they chose to do the opening with von der Leyen, so the German defense minister, and Williamson, the British defense minister, because there are problems in the French-German relationship, but rather because they wanted to make a point about, you know, the UK still being part of European defense, um, obviously still part of NATO. But somehow, so last year, I felt that the French-German message got quite a lot of traction. This time, I didn't feel that this whole Britain in Europe message worked that well, maybe also because the Williamson speech wasn't that strong, I think. It's quite strong on Russia. It was, that's true. Yeah. And, and of course, you So know, what did he say on Russia? So I don't have the speech in, in front of me, but he basically, um, yeah, it was quite strong on, on Russia insofar as he of accused Russia of, um, creating, you know, turmoil, um, in, in Europe. Um, I think he used the, the, even the formulation, uh, bloods on their hands. So he criticized Russia quite quite a lot. That being said, he did end with by saying this is not the relationship with Russia that we want and our doors are open, something like that. So it was somewhere in between accusing them of, of really creating many problems and trying to get them back on board. But other than that, the speech was about, you know, the UK in NATO, the UK in Europe. He had, that's also important, he had held a speech, a rather important speech, just a few days before in London at the Royal United Service Institute, RUSI, where he was very belligerent. Um, it was all about global Britain. It was about, you know, UK going to China and... and it, Sending aircraft carriers into the South China Sea. 
Exactly, and that wasn't received particularly well so by well, anyone. It was received really. so well that the Chinese forced the British Chancellor to cancel his trip to China. Yeah, and so I think that may that may be a reason why the Williamson speech here in Munich wasn't as grandiose. Okay, anything more? Because there are other Europeans there as well. There's obviously the European High Representative, Mogherini, or a bunch of European Defence Ministers as well. So on Mogherini, I also missed. Bits of her speech, but when I was in the in the conference room and she was speaking, at one point she talked about Europe's strength and she mentioned Europe as a military power. I think she may have even said Europe as a military superpower, and she said that the European defense budgets combined are make make Europe's defense budget the second largest defense budget in the world. And she was really emphasizing Europe's military power. And to be quite honest, when she said that, people next to me in the conference hall actually started laughing. So I don't think you know that 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 was particularly convincing. There was all there was a, a nice moment of uh, European reconciliation though with um, two leaders who have really shown quite a lot of bravery over the last few months. Uh, Alexis Tsipras, the Greek oh, yeah. uh, Prime Minister, and Zayev, the the Macedonian Prime Minister, who were given the prize almost as prestigious as the prize that you got. <laughs> okay, <through>. enough. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Why were they given a prize? Because they they finally settled a year old, a decades old question of uh, about Macedonia, the name, the region Macedonia in Greece, and and that the country that was formerly uh, named Macedonia now is called North Macedonia, and that's the compromise that they reached, which is which was very uh, difficult actually, because there there are a lot of you know, sentiments and and all in both in both countries about that region. But by now having settled that dispute, North Macedonia, that what we're now calling it, can can join NATO. We've, in fact, discussed the Macedonian issue on this podcast before. Um, so that was a sign of progress, of happiness. It's the sort of thing which brings a ray of hope to Munich security community. And I think there was another session that you were at this morning, Rika, which felt a bit more uh, hopeful than the horrible world of great power politics <laughs> that we started with. Right, exactly. So the first session this morning, that was what is called here a town hall session that's a bit more informal, a bit smaller. And it brought together three very interesting people, Christian Freeland from Canada, Carl Bild from Sweden, and also ECFR council member, of course. Co-chair of ECFR. Indeed. And Madeleine Albright from the United States. And what I particularly enjoyed about this discussion was that it was quite upbeat. So it was about all kinds of topics, really. There wasn't one specific topic. They talked about migration quite a lot. They talked a lot about how great Canada is and how pretty Sweden is, things like that. Isn't it uh, about saving democracy and the rule-based order? Yes, which is a rather big topic, isn't it? And that includes a lot of a lot of things. No, exactly. They talked about democracy and getting, um, like you know, real people uh, on board and engaged um, uh, in in all these things that are being discussed in Munich among you know kind of small crowd of people. And it's important to get these messages out there. So I thought that it was rather nice after well two days that felt a bit like doom and gloom to have a bit of a more upbeat message of saying we need to go out there and we are going out there and and we, we can make this happen especially if kind of smaller uh, liberal powers you know Canada Sweden um, uh, these countries 
work together, which, by the way, was also the main message of Heiko Maas. I was the, about to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm, the alliance of multilateralists, right? So, that yeah, it's absolutely true that Heiko Maas's speech um, basically did go back to his favourite theme of the alliance of multilateralists, though this time, actually, he was moving away from the old idea of it being uh, a kind of single alliance and taught more about how we need a loosely based network of, uh, of, of countries that can work together on different areas and to try and reverse the weaponization of the global system and the use of geoeconomic tools uh, in this competition between powers if we want to maintain a rule-based order. I mean, I got to say, I like I like the sentiment behind this idea of the alliance of multilateralists. Um, it emphasizes the importance of smaller countries. It, yeah, it, it tries to get smaller liberal countries together to work together. However, I don't feel that it's very clear what exactly Mars wants. As you said, it, it's not even an alliance. It just means that these countries should coordinate more. That's all nice and well, but it's not as if, you know, these countries aren't talking already. So I'm not entirely sure what this means other than it just reminds people that, you know, it's not just the United States that is that is important and an important liberal power, but there are others. And maybe just as a side note, I was in Japan um, a little while ago and I actually asked a few representatives of, you know, foreign ministry and, and other political representatives about this idea um, from Germany about the alliance of multilateralists, because Japan is always mentioned as one of the partners. And to be quite honest, the answer was something along the lines of, yeah, that sounds interesting. We can do this. I mean, it really wasn't as if they, they were thinking, great, this is going to be the, the big new thing. There is there is that conceptual question, but maybe it's it's much more about what what does get done about it. And and you know, if you go to Japan and ask people, uh, you know, what what they've done with Europe, and there's actually quite a lot. Merkel just visited, uh, reinforced ties, but but mostly the EU concluded the JEFTA, the Japan Europe Free Trade Agreement, and then on on, on other issues, um, I think Mars Mars is, is thinking of. Of very concrete issues, for example, what if the undermining and the erosion of the WTO continues, and we basically don't have an organization that regulates and, and channels trade uh, anymore, and if that's frozen, if the appellate body, which is for dispute resolution between different sites, trading sites, is frozen, then then you get together with those countries, the multilateralists, and, and you try to uphold mechanisms and rules rather than it just being a competition of, you know, the might makes right. That was definitely one of the big topics in the ECFR side event as well, where we got a bunch of European foreign ministers together to talk about a project we're doing with eight European foreign ministries and the European External Action Service on European sovereignty, which is sort of looking at how Europeans can organise themselves to uh, advance their interests and values in, in this world, which is descending into great power competition. There's one final thing we should probably talk about. My uh, Munich Security Conference every year starts with lots of tweets, usually uh, by some of my best friends in the think tank community, where they show this sea of white male faces and <laughs> they write, why aren't there any women here? Um, so as a result of, of that sort of dynamic, there's obviously the tweets, but equally important is there is always a women's breakfast at the beginning of the of the Munich Security Conference. And I think you were there, Ulrika. I was there. It's It was on Saturday morning and it was such an amazing event, I have to say. So big shout out and thank you to Wise Germany, Women in International Security. 
Germany, they organize this every year. I think they've done so for the last nine years, if Zika I'm not mistaken. Zika Temple used to be one of the big movers and shakers behind that. Um, exactly, yeah. Until she tragically died. There are so many great women in WISE and, and they were at the Munich Security Conference and they put, they put on this breakfast at 7 a.m. on Saturday morning where they had a range of great speakers. So not only it was a f room full of, of, of women that work on these issues, but Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, the head of the, the CDU, Merkel's party, but now <laughs> her party spoke. Um, I really enjoyed that. And Ivanka Trump was there as well. Ivanka Trump was there indeed. Yeah. She did talk for a little while about uh, women empowerment, um, especially in developing countries. That was quite interesting to, to hear as well. Um, Christina Friedland, uh, Freeland, sorry, was also there. Yeah, I thought it was a very nice symbol. And I think over time we are seeing more women now also on stage in Munich. Annegret Kalmbauer is somebody who we're going to hear a lot more from in the future. She's quite likely to become Chancellor of Germany in the not too distant future. Hmm. And yet she's been much more famous within German internal politics than on the international scene. Be very interesting to hear what she had to say for herself at, at this breakfast. So she talked about a number of issues. Women and being a woman in politics was one of them. She actually called herself a Quotenfrau, so a quota woman, because she said that's how she got into initial political positions she started out with in the first place. But she mentioned many other things from artificial intelligence that, you know, something I'm quite interested in. She talked about biases there, the, the danger posed by uh, biases in artificial intelligence. The speech at one point became quite personal. She talked about having, you know, kids and how to work and, and have a family at the same time. She joked a bit about the CDU that when um, she she was running to replace Merkel, people basically said, oh, after 18 years of a woman leader, can we have another woman leader? And she said, well, did they realize that, you know, the 50 years beforehand, there were only men? So, it you know, it was a bit different things. Populism or kind of, you know, getting the, the population engaged in political discussions was another topic. As we mentioned, this was something that has been discussed uh, MSC uh, more broadly. So, yeah, as I said, I quite I quite enjoyed this. Great. OK, I think that brings us more or less to the end of our reflections on MSC 2019. So we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Jonathan, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Um, it's a, it's a French book actually written by an American. Uh, Stephen Smith is, uh, La Rue vers l'Europe. So the, uh, for lack of a better word, march toward Europe, um, uh, or, or the, uh, vying for Europe. It's a demographic account of future developments in Africa and in Europe and the disbalances that it creates and the migration flows that we might expect in, in the future. Emmanuel Macron mentioned it uh, at some point in the fall as, as being critical to, uh, to you know, having shaped his, his thinking about Africa and the future challenge about that. So great. That's what, what's on my bookshelf. And what about how, you? how comes that an American author is writing a book in French? In French, he's an RFI, Radio France International journalist. Um, but it's a good question. I was, I was struck Very by it good. as well. I like it. So what's on your bookshelf? I just finished a book and I think it has become a good tradition for me to basically only recommend science fiction on this podcast. So I shall continue this 
tradition because the book I just finished is called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. Um, and it is a very interesting science fiction book. It creates a whole kind of universe of different species working together. And what I like about it is that it's so positive. You know, kind of, kind of staying with the, with the theme or the, the spirit of this morning's uh, session, as I mentioned, the more kind of upbeat, uplifting session. Um, this book is thinking about how can species work together and understand their differences without killing each other. And, you know, that seems to be a good message. So I've been reading a book, which is not going to come out till September. So I've forgotten long before. Um, Unless this podcast ends up having a much longer <laughs> editing process. <laughs> um, but it's by Ivan Krastev and Stephen Holmes, and it's called The Light That Failed. And it is a truly wonderful reflection on 1989 and uh, all the things that we hoped for after 1989 and all the reasons why um, things haven't panned out as we expected. Um, it's, a, it's a very deep, interesting, thought-provoking book with a fascinating meta-thesis, but also lots of little angles, aphorisms, amazing uh, little bits which stay with you long after you read it so um go out and buy it in september <laughs> <laughs> so um if you enjoy listening to this podcast please do let people know about it on your social media page or ours uh give us a rating on itunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast on we'll put links up to all the things that we mentioned on our website which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts but for now from Jonathan Hakenbosch, Ulrika Franke, and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Vika Evering. <laughs>